Go ahead and turn to Romans 1. We are going through our verse-by-verse study through Romans. If you are joining us today, welcome for the first time. Um, And you came at a good time because we just started this book. So we're still in chapter 1, and you can go back and watch online or listen on our podcast and catch up. And as I go through the book of Romans, one of the things that I really want to do is there's a lot of what I call Christianese words that we use all the time. And I don't, especially if you're newer to being a Christian, like you might see this word, like words repeated all throughout the Bible and not really understand what they mean because they're not words that you use in everyday life. Or they're words that even as Christians, like we've never taken the time to really understand the depth of it. And it's important to understand those words because they, under, they help you understand the depth of the good news. Because the more you understand the good news, the better news it becomes for you. So it's really important. And one of those words that we're going to look at today is the word wrath, okay? I don't go around usually saying, oh man, my wrath is going to be unleashed on you, all right? We don't use that terminology, but does anyone here know what wrath means? Go ahead, Tyson. Uh, it can amount to that. It, it's, it's like an extreme anger. So yes, it can lead to that. It's just extreme anger, like very angry, all right? So what are some things in life that cause you to have wrath? Hey, be honest. It's okay. We're in church. <laughs> huh? What did I hear? Traffic? Traffic. Yes. <laughs> Child abuse. Yes. Yes. What are some other things? Animal abuse? Has anyone ever ex- let out extreme wrath on their children? Or am I the only one? Uh, I, yes, thank you for being honest. <laughs> and that, that's an important point, point to make because here's the thing. Our wrath is not always justified or we're not always right to be angry because we have this thing called flesh the Bible talks about, which can cause us to lose our temper simply because we're annoyed by something, simply because we're impatient or things aren't going the way that we would want. But there is such a thing as righteous anger or wrath or anger that is, isn't wrong because the Bible actually says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin, all right? So it is, the Bible would not say, God would not say in his word that it was possible to be angry and not sin if that, in fact, it wasn't, you weren't able to do that. So, and the idea between, behind righteous anger, righteous wrath is that it's when we see or are exposed to sin in evil against other people or us, and we're angered at it, all right? That's the type of anger God has. It's a controlled anger, and it's justified, all right? So whenever you see the Bible talking about God's wrath, you have to understand that's what it's talking about. And in today's text, Paul's going to talk about this, explaining to us just how bad humanity is. And when I say humanity... I'm going to say we and us, and I realize that some of us have placed our faith in Jesus, so therefore, as we're going to talk about, the wrath of God doesn't apply to us, but it did apply to us at one point, because we all come from the same place, right? We're all sinners. So when I say humanity, I'm talking about all of us, but Paul's going to explain just how bad we are as a humanity, and and the reality of that is that we, we most certainly deserve God's wrath. So we're better able to see just how good the gospel really is in that God has chosen to spare us from his anger. 
because of what Jesus has done for us, all right? Gotta understand the bad news because the bad news is what makes the good news so good, amen? All right, so we saw Paul end his greeting to the believers in Rome with basically giving us this overview of the gospel in verses 16 through 17, and today we're gonna see him start to break this good news down. Gospel means good news. We're gonna see him break it down in more detail, first telling us one of the things that we specifically need to be saved from as we're all unrighteous before God without Jesus's help, or we're all guilty of not being right with God because of disobeying his word. That's what sin is in the Bible. Whenever we disobey what God says, the one that's created us, and as such, we all deserve God's righteous wrath, or we all deserve for him to be angry with us. And if I had to summarize Romans 1, 18 through 32, which is where we're gonna be today, it's that because of the sin in our lives, God has every right to be extremely angry at us, and we need to be saved from his justified anger, okay? That's the point of what Paul's trying to teach us today. And so we're gonna pick it up in Romans 1.18. Um, I'm gonna read through this whole section and then pray and then we'll break it down. So Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds, in animals, in creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such, such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Lord God, we just come here in humility, understanding when we go through that list that that applies to every single one of us in some way or another. And as such, know that this wrath that's being talked about is 
is applicable to us. Surely we've done things in our lives that are wrong, and because of that, we deserve for you to be angry at us, Lord. And for those of us that know the truth of your good news, we are so thankful that you are not angry at us, that that wrath that our sin deserved, our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, as your word says, was placed upon your son Jesus on that cross when he paid the price that our sin deserved in full. And we've been forgiven of it. And what he gave us was his righteousness or his rightness with you so that when you look at us, that's what you see. And so instead of being angry, you're pleased. You love us, you're happy with us. You call us your children, your friend. And it's not at all based on us. It's based on everything Jesus did for us. And we can confidently know that truth, Lord. So as we go through this section today, may you help us understand to an even greater degree what you saved us from, Lord. And for anyone here that needs that free gift of salvation, may today be the day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Verse 18 starts with that word for. Anytime you see a for or therefore, what he's doing is he's tying what he just talked about to what he's gonna say, okay? So if you, were, if you were here last week, we went through verses 16 or 17, which was kind of an overall summation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, okay? So he's tying this, these next couple verses and what he's about to say to that. Like in essence, what he's saying is this good news is... is like what he's about to say is why that good news is necessary or why that gospel is necessary. And he goes on to say, for the wrath of God or because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, suppress the truth, okay? So this is in a sense is the what is the problem, Okay why the gospel's needed, you need to know what the problem is. And he hits it right here. He gives us the sobering truth that God's wrath is revealed or shown toward all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So ungodliness is any, any offense you do against God. Any sin you do in your life is directly against God. So that's ungodliness. Unrighteousness is any offense you do against each other. Any sin you commit against each other, and they go hand in hand, would be called unrighteousness, all right? And so through our unrighteousness or the way we treat each other, verse 18 says we suppress the truth. The Greek word used here carrying the idea of like a helmsman steering a boat against the current. As the current wants the boat to go one way, the person controlling the oars is fighting that current and going the other way. And what he's trying to say here is that humanity has clearly shown that we are determined to disregard and rebel against God in his word, all right? Now, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about an example, like you can see this practically. And if you've raised children, you're probably all too familiar with their, their dedication or determination to disregard and disobey, disobey your word, especially when they're younger, right? I can think of with all my kids, when I'm teaching them, when, at that age when you're trying to teach them, don't touch that thing, because it'll kill you, all right? Pretty serious, don't touch it. And I can think of like specifically the plugs when you're trying to teach them not to touch the outlets. This is like with all my boys, I can remember saying, 
Don't touch that. For whatever reason, they're drawn to that hole and they want to put something in that hole, right? Don't touch that. And they just look at you with a blank face and they touch it. Don't touch that. So in our house, that's willful disobedience. Willful disobedience is going to get like a discipline, all right? Not punishment, I'm not trying to hurt them, but we're disciplining them for their benefit to learn. So they get a little swat on the butt, a little swat on the hand, and then they make that sad face like they're upset. And what do you know? They still go to try to touch it. I mean, you're trying to train them to not be determined to disregard and rebel against the truth of your word, right? That you're trying to help them know what's good and, and, and not good. And this is us as humanity. We're determined to disobey God, all right? And because of this, we truly deserve God's anger, all right? Our willful disobedience, just as with our children willfully disobeying, that's justified anger, all right? But the, the other part of that is, I would caution you to be careful never to equate God's anger with ours, because as I pointed out before, our anger is so often tainted with selfish motives that it's not righteous, it's not pure, it's sin in itself, whereas the wrath of God is always completely righteous, all right? He's He's got perfect character that doesn't allow him to be anything other than good. And he's always justified in being angry with us because of our great sin. And if you note back in verse 18, it says he's not just angry, all right? We gotta get this like, we can be in a bad mood. We can like be hangry. That's, that's not God, okay? He's not looking to be mad and lose his temper at somebody. As it says, his Wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's not just against people because he's looking for somebody to be angry at. We've given him a justified reason to be angry, all right? Just as a toddler doing something that you specifically told him not to do because it will hurt them, God specifically told us things not to do because it'll hurt us and we've done chosen to do those things so we've given them a justifiable reason to be angry at us. Now, here's the other thing I would say that's important to understand. That in no way negates the fact that God loves you, all right? God can still be angry and still love you, all right? John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, right? So just as if your kid disobeys you, do you not love him or her? No, of course you do, right? You love your child regardless. Whether your anger is justified or not, you still love them. So to an even greater degree, God's love is perfect. So he can love us and still be angry at the sin in our lives. All right, because he sees that we're harming ourselves and he sees that we're harming other people, okay? So that's the what, all right? And then it goes on to say in verse 19, and it says four, again, this ties to the last verses where he explained the what, now he's gonna explain the why, why, why we've, what this has resulted in for us. Basically, he says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, okay? So when you look at the what of verse 18, some people's natural reaction might be like, how am I even supposed to know that there's a God? What evidence is there that there's 
God, let alone to know what he expects of me or what he desires of me, what he says is right or wrong. How am I even supposed to know those things? And what Paul's response to them here in verse 19 through 20 would be is that in the complexity and grandeur of creation in itself, it says and it proves to us that there is a God, okay? God's basically not hiding himself from anyone, but rather he's made it so obvious obvious to us in his creation, you have no excuse not to know that he's real. Creation proves that there's a creator. It's too complex and beautiful and magnificent to just be by accident. There's no way it just came to be. And if there is a creator that mean, that that means his creation is accountable to him, or as verse 20 says, we have no excuse to deny that he exists and rebel against him. Because if, there, if his creation says that he's real and we can see that, then we are responsible to pursue him or to understand who he is and what he desires of us. Psalms 19, one through four further tells us this. It says that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. That basically passage telling us that the heavens, and when it talks about heavens, it's talking about space, it's talking about the moon, it's talking about the sun, it's talking about the sky and the clouds. It's saying that those things in themselves without ever speaking to you, specifically saying God is real, tell you that he's real, okay? And here's the thing. Humanity would agree with this. Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist and former director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, confirms this very thing we're talking about when he's talking about the Big Bang Theory. And if you don't understand what that theory is, it's how the universe came into existence. It just started. One day it just, there was a bang and it all happened. Don't know how, don't know where it came from. It just started. And he's saying here in this quote that I'm gonna read to you that, yep, that agrees with the biblical account that God created the whole entire universe and spoke it into existence in six days. He says, now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are now the same. Consider the enormity of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain given moment. It asks what cause produced this effect, who or what put the matter and energy into the universe, and science cannot answer this question. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of his own reason, the story ends now like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries, talking about the Bible. Amen? So Paul goes on to say, He's talked about the what the problem is, why you need the gospel, and the why, because we've, in essence, denied God, even though he's clearly made it clear to us that he's real. We have no reason to deny him. 
And he goes on to say the result of this. It says in verse 21, for, again, tying it to the previous verses, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds, in animals, in creeping things. So even though God has revealed himself to us in his creation, humanity has chosen to suppress the truth, as verse 18 says, and deny his existence. The problem not being that humanity does not know of God because the proof of him is surely there, according to verses 19 through 20, but rather it does not, it, rather that, Rather that it does not know of him, it, it does know of him, but it refuses to glorify him or acknowledge him as God their creator. Instead giving him, instead of giving him the honor and thanks that he deserves as God, according to verse 21, mankind has chosen to come up with their own futile or worthless ideas about who God is or what we think he should be like based off of our preferences which has darkened or corrupted our hearts, as verse 21 says, from seeing the truth. And that right there is the reason you see so much devastation in the world today. Because humanity as a whole has chosen to ignore who their creator is and allowed their hearts to be darkened or replaced him with their own ideas of who he should be. And that's what we're here for as Christians, right? To help show them the truth, to help reveal the good news to them, who God really is according to his word, so that their eyes can be opened like ours have been opened, and that darkness can be removed, amen? And understanding that will help you have the proper perspective when you're dealing with people that apparently are, do, that are doing things and they appear to be like harming themselves and help, harming others and you just can't understand why they're doing such things, we were all there. We all once were. And so it's important to understand that so that we can have compassion and bear with them and understand that our job's there to help them understand truth. Amen? Just like someone helped us understand truth. So instead of having the wisdom that Mankind thinks it has, according to verse 22, they're really fools, choosing to worship worthless idols, celebrating corruptible people and animals instead of the one and only immortal God that has made us and loves us and wants us to know him, okay? And when you truly start to explore and research a lot of scientific theories such as evolution that tries to take credit for what God has done, and remove him from the picture and see some of the major inconsistencies or conflictions that exist within the, that science just ignores, such as the Big Bang Theory, like, well, we don't know where it came from. It just started. Okay, that's a big problem, right? But when you see those inconsistencies, you really start to see how foolish those ideas are and how it takes much greater faith to believe those ideas than it does to believe God in his word. The foolishness that mankind has chosen to embrace being one example of God's righteous wrath coming against those who have rejected him. In essence, 
He allows us to face the consequences that our sinful actions lead to when we choose to go down that path, and being fools is one of those consequences, okay? This need to worship something or someone by humanity all throughout history in itself proving that mankind does acknowledge God's existence to some degree, but it also showing that humanity doesn't want to submit to a creator that it has to answer to, but rather one that answers to them. Is that would mean, if we submit to one that we answer to, that would mean that we can't do what we want to do. So instead, we create our own gods or choose to worship the people and things that allow us to do what our darkened or corrupt hearts want to do. Biblical scholar Kenneth Woos had this to say about this idea. He said, the human race puts God to the test for the purpose of approving him should he meet the specifications which it laid down for a God who would be to its liking. In finding that he did not meet those specifications, it refused to approve him as the God to be worshiped or have him in its knowledge. And that is kind of where we're at as a whole in mankind. And as Christians, we gotta be really careful to look at this and think that somehow we've moved past this because here's the thing. We're just as capable of knowing God but not glorifying him as God, okay? We can do that when we insist on our own way instead of trust, leaning and lean on our own understanding instead of giving him the honor he deserves, as verse 21 says, and trusting his way is the best way, even if it doesn't feel or seem that way, all right? Because he's God and he's incapable of making mistakes. Psalm 145, 17 tells us the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He doesn't make mistakes. He's always right and he's always good. He's always kind in everything he does. And I totally get it doesn't always feel that way because we're limited in our understanding. We don't see the whole picture. We only see part of it. And often because we're facing the repercussions of our own sin or someone else's sin, we don't see how God's gonna work that for our good until hindsight but that's where faith comes into the picture. And to honor God is to trust him and believe him at his word. We can also not glorify God when we don't give him thanks as he deserves in all circumstances as 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us too. His word tells us in Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all. He doesn't do bad things. He's good and justified in all he does. And so he deserves our thanks. And like I said before, it can be hard to do that sometimes because we don't see the whole picture. We don't see how he's working something that's bad in itself for our good yet, but he's done it over and over again. And it's to help us understand that he's faithful. Even as his word says, even when you're faithless, he's faithful to you. So he deserves to be glorified. He deserves to be thanks. He deserves to be honored. And we can also not glorify him when we allow people or other things in this world to become a greater priority in our lives than God and become idols that we worship. Maybe we don't worship a little figurine of a cow. Some people do. But I mean, maybe we don't do that like, like this culture was really a prevailing in this culture or whatnot. But we do worship celebrities, we do worship our jobs, we do worship money, we worship sports. There's all types of things that even aren't bad in themselves, but we can let them become bad because they become of a greater importance than God in our lives. And here's the thing why this is important, because when God is the center of your worship, when he's the center of your attention, like he wants to be, 
you inevitably will start to become like Jesus, all right? What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is that so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. As we see him, as we get to know him and we understand how awesome he is and there's nothing bad about him, we want to be like him and he changes us to be like him. But here's the problem. Whenever other things become the center of your attention, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Those things you invest in, those are the things you'll start to love and tragically you will start to become like those things. And in this culture, and even still today, you saw a lot of worship of animals. And guess what? People started to act like animals in that they had no morality and they behaved in that way. And you actually see that as we kind of go through this. I once had, and I'm no joking, I had a doctor try to convince me that it was normal behavior for men to be promiscuous and not be married and faithful to one woman since we evolved from animals. Because a lot of male animals, that's what they do, right? They live to breed with whatever comes their way. And since you evolve from that, that's the way you should be as a man. Now, obviously, God's word says that is not natural. That's unnatural. And clearly, as such, it's foolish wisdom from a darkened heart that is contrary to God's word. And it would lead to all sorts of negative repercussions if you chose to live your life like that. But this person that had removed God or denied his existence, or made God who he wanted him to be, didn't know that. Because his heart, he allowed his heart to be darkened and came up with his own perspective from what he worshiped in his life. This is the way I want to live, so this is the way I'm going to live. Paul goes on to say, as he starts talking about the, the actual specific consequences of removing God, worshiping other things or, or worshiping your version of God. He says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So because humanity has chosen to deny God in his truth and chosen to be, believe a lie in its own foolishness, this lie essentially being idolatry, which puts us in the place of God thinking that we know better than he does, which is the same lie that Satan's tried to tempt people from in the beginning. If you guys are familiar with Genesis 3.5, when, when God's created the first two humans, even Adam, put them in this perfect garden to tend after it, said you can eat whatever you want except from this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. It won't be good for you. Satan comes to Eve and says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, both knowing good and evil. And that's the same tactic he tries to get us to do today. Oh, you, you can be like God. You can make your own decisions. You can understand what's good and what's bad for you. Mankind going as far to worship the things God clearly created while at the same time denying him as the creator, as verse 25 says, because if you remove the creator from the equation, guess all that's left to worship the things that he created, right? And hence, there's no distinction between animals, trees, insects, or any other created thing, and people. And as such, the world's placed greater or equal value on the things God made 
to sustain us, to bless us with instead of those that he uniquely created in God's image because God is not acknowledged by it. So as a part of his wrath, God has given mankind up to the lusts of our hearts, as verse 24 says, or he allows us to do what we want to do, what we're insistent on doing, or the things that our flesh desires, which would not be a problem if we were naturally good, but we're not. What the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, is that the human heart is the most deceitful of all, all things and desperately wicked. Despite what the world would try to tell us, we're not inherently good without God helping us change our hearts. Instead, we're wicked, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, or evil. And this is why you see so much destructive behavior in the world today, because those that have denied God have been allowed to do what their flesh desires and experience the self-inflicted consequences of it, which don't just affect them, but affect the rest of us around them as well. This including doing vile and degrading things to our bodies, as verse 24 says, because when we remove God from our lives, we also remove the value that comes with being created in his image. And when we do not value ourselves as God does, it leads to all types of demeaning behavior in society. When you look at things like child trafficking or prostitution or pornography or murder or rape or abortion or self-harm or suicide or like gender mutilation, all those things come as a result of removing God and the value that he's placed on each of us in that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. You take him out of the picture, then that value goes. And you can try to value in any other thing, but it's not going to amount to anything. And then all of a sudden you devalue people and you treat them horribly, shamefully, is it saying. Paul going on to talk about some of these practices in the following verses specifically. He says in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable or shameful passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. So Paul is writing this letter from the city of Corinth, if you guys remember when I went through the overview of it, which was, had a reputation for sexual immorality. Uh, it was openly embraced, approved of in that society as it was throughout all the Roman Empire, and just like it is in today's world. For the most part, it's very similar in that it's actually encouraged to some degree. And Paul here uses um, one specific form of, of what God's word defines as sexual immorality, which is homosexuality, as an example of how God in his wrath has let humanity indulge in their sinful passions and lusts to face the consequences of them. Paul discussing both here women having sexual relations with other women in verse 26 and men having sexual relations with other men in verse 27. And I think the key term to note in, in this section here in verses 26 and 27 that Paul uses is that they were not natural or contrary to nature because it's clearly evident given the anatomy of males and females that God intended for males to have sex 
only with females and vice versa. And here's the thing, that's actual science that can be fact-checked by the truth of God's word, okay? But again, for those that deny God's existence or have rejected him with a lie that suits their desires, there is no natural order of things. It can be whatever you want. And again, that's important to understand because like our eyes were once darkened and deceived, their eyes are deceived. They know no different because they've removed God from their lives and therefore they have nothing defining what is natural and unnatural. And as such, God has gave them up to these unnatural passions, as verse 26 says, to face the penalty that comes with them, as verse 27 says, as all sin has negative consequences. We need to understand that sin is never bad because it's forbidden, but rather sin is forbidden because it's always bad for us, which is the reason God tells us not to do it. He wants to save us the pain that it causes, the destruction it causes, and he gives us a way to be saved from it through faith in Jesus. The section in God's word, along with multiple others, making it clear that homosexuality, along with any other form of sexual immorality, and that can be summed up as any sexual relations outside of a male and female being married together. That's what sexual immorality is in the Bible. But this making it clear that it's not a part of God's good and pleasing and perfect will for us as people, his creation, all right? And if you ever hear a church or a pastor say otherwise, unfortunately, they have gone along with the rest of the world in suppressing the truth. And they do not want what is best for you because it's not what God says, And it goes on and says in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased or an immoral mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Covetousness is basically wanting what you don't have, looking at others and wanting stuff. Malice, or that's kind of intending to do harm to other people says they are full of envy, murder, strife. Strife is kind of having conflict with people, arguing with them. Deceit means liars. Maliciousness, they are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, rude. The idea of insolent is you're rude or you show a lack of respect. Haughty, arrogant, basically. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, Paul repeats this phrase in verse 28, God gave them up three times in this passage because he's really emphasizing that the evil we see in the world today, the, the, the destruction, the, the stuff you just, you're just like, how is this happening? That it's self-inflicted basically as a result of God allowing people that want nothing to do with him to go ahead. Do what your debased mind wants to do, which is what ought not to be done or isn't what God wants us to do, as verse 28 says. Humanity's rebellion against God, not only being in their actions, but also in their thinking. Because our minds are immoral when we take the one that defines morality out of our lives or reassign him and make up a false version of him that defines morality based off of what we think it is. 
And Paul goes on to give a list of what this type of immoral thinking leads to in a person's life in verse 31, which if we look at this, we're all guilty to some degree, right? Verse 32 telling us that a society that has abandoned God's truth and not only practices such things, but also approves of them is deserving of death, which is what the wages of sin or the penalty for sin as Romans 6.23 tells us. And as I was reading this, I was just thinking, man, we're that society in an ever-increasing degree that approves of these destructive habits, right? And it seemed really fitting that this has just happened where we happen to be in a month that celebrates one of the very things he's saying in here that's harmful and wrong. And isn't it just like Satan to trick the very people celebrating that, to use the very thing that separates us from God, pride? Pride is not your friend, people. It's not. Pride is what causes us to think we know better than what God does. Pride is what keeps distance between us and God. What the Bible talks about is humble yourself. Be humble. Acknowledge that you're not okay by yourself, that you're not perfect, that you do make bad decisions, and that maybe you don't know everything you think you know know him because I should know the one that made me because obviously he knows more than I do. That's what we need to embrace, humility, not pride. And some might say, well, it just feels right. I just was born feeling this way. Well, what Paul's telling us here is you can't trust your feelings. Those are the very things that can lead you in the wrong direction. Well, everyone else says it's okay. Everyone else is doing it. Paul's saying, you can't trust the world around you. They don't know what they're doing. They think they do, but they don't know what's right or wrong. All you can truly trust is God and his word, and if your feelings or people are telling you to do something that conflicts with it, here's the reality. God is always right. You can think he's wrong. doesn't change the fact that he's right, and he only wants what's best for you. And listening to him and following him is what is gonna lead to that And I really want the young people in this church right now to listen to me because I spent the first 20 years of my life living to satisfy my flesh or do what I wanted to do, which the people around me were saying, oh, that's fine, just do it. Do whatever you feel. It's good for you. And it wasn't good for me. It led to nothing but destruction and harm and dissatisfaction and discontentment to the point that I was getting to be suicidal. And then God saved me. And I found everything I was looking for, value, worth, fulfillment, happiness, everything in him. And I saw how real he was because I experienced the things I couldn't find anywhere else in the world in him. And I never turned away. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. I'm a very much work in progress, but I knew that Jesus is what I needed. And I know you young people are hearing from your teachers, from your friends, from doctors, from all these people telling you, oh, do this, think this way. It's okay, it's good for you. And I'm here to tell you that's really the devil speaking through them because he wants to kill and steal from you and destroy you. And God has something so much better for you and he's more than proved his love for you in the fact 
that he sent his son to die so you could be forgiven of your sin and you could personally have him in your life to actually lead you and guide you into that good, pleasing, and perfect will he has for your life. So you don't have to be alone. He did it for me and he wants to do it for you. And as the worship team comes up here, man, I just wanna remind us that have already placed our faith in Jesus, we're all guilty of these things, right? And I love how he places, I mean, I don't love this, but I mean, he places like being a liar equal with being a murderer. They're in the same list, right? There's no like greater echelon of sin. It's all sin and we're all guilty of sin to some degree, probably more so than we know because if we're not guilty of doing it in some way or another, we're probably guilty of approving of it in some way in our actions or our words. So we're guilty and God has every right to be angry at us but if you place your faith in Jesus, he's not. He's not. Even though we still drop the ball and we make mistakes, every sin we've ever done in our whole entire lives, every sin we'll ever do was paid for in full and taken care of on that cross. And so you don't have to doubt it. God is not mad at you. He's pleased with you. He looks at you as a perfect child. You could never out sin his grace. He will never give up on you. He will never abandon you. He will never let you down. And that's all received, not because of how we're doing today or how we did yesterday. It's all through faith in Jesus. From faith for faith, as Paul says, it's faith. You can be absolutely confident of it. And that, that's what he's getting at in this chapter is this is the bad news that makes the good news so great. This is what should make us ecstatic that have placed our faith in Jesus. And if you're here today and you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is good news for you too because you can do it today. If your sin's in your life, then God's wrath remains on you. You deserve for him to be angry. But the reality is he allowed his son to die on that cross so that the wrath your sin deserved was placed upon him. That anger that our sin deserved was placed upon Jesus and Jesus willingly took it as a perfect sacrifice, as somebody, God in the flesh, who came and lived on this earth and did nothing wrong so he could die as a perfect sacrifice and take all of the wrath, and as we're gonna look at in a couple weeks, judgment that our sin deserved so we wouldn't have to, so that he could give us his righteousness, his rightness before God, his perfection. He could give it to you in exchange for the wrath and judgment your sin deserves. Best trade you'll ever make in your life. Yes. yes. And when God looks at you, he sees his perfect son. He sees you right. And that's what allows him to not be angry, but be pleased and happy. Hallelujah. Amen? Yes. It's worthy of our worship, right? Yes. yes. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a response time and we're gonna take, open up the communion elements. We do the communion in remembrance of Jesus and what he's done for us. We give him thanks because we never wanna, that to somehow grow dull to us. We never wanna forget the great sacrifice that was made and what that meant for us, 
what he's saved us from, the things we read about today, how he's changed our lives. We take that bread and it represents his body that was broken on the cross for us. We take that juice spilled and we take these things and we thank him. Lord, thank you for changing my life, for saving me, for not being angry at me when I deserve for you to be angry at me. Thank you for setting me free from sin. Help me live in that freedom. I don't want to hurt myself anymore. You saved me from that life. And we'll have people around the room for you to pray with. If you need prayer for anything whatsoever, we're here to bear that burden with you. And if you're somebody that's visiting and you're like, that, that resonates. I need to know God. I recognize he's real and I need to know him. I need to place my faith in Jesus. Come up and we'll lead you in a prayer. It's really a conversation between you and God, but I know sometimes you're just, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And we can help you with that. But more than anything, man, praise the Lord. As we sing these truths in this song, praise it. Praise him. Let that excitement inside of you for what he's done for you come out. That is the natural response to God's goodness that he's shown to us. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for saving us. Thank you for reminding us today of how wretched we all are. For those of us who placed our faith in you, Jesus, we know that we're forgiven. <laughs> and it seems like the longer I follow you, the more wretched I realize how much I, how I am. It's just like these differing, like, like opening, like peeling apart an onion, these different layers of sin that I didn't even know were in me that you're slowly but surely just removing from my life so that all that remains is the goodness that you're implanting in me, that you're conform, is you're conforming to the image of your son. And Lord, the reality is I don't argue with any of this. I was once that person for 20 years of my life that denied you. Even though you gave me all the evidence I needed right in front of me, how real you were, I chose to ignore it. and make up my own version of who God should be. And I allowed myself to just be deceived. And that got me absolutely nowhere good in my life. I can attest to that, Lord. I look back now and it's a miracle I'm still alive. Everything that has been good in my life has come from you and through you. And I'm so thankful that you saved me on that day you did, Lord. And I pray for anyone here today that has not experienced that same love, that, that goodness that I experienced the day, immediately when you came into my life, I pray today would be the day that they receive you, that they repent, they turn from their sin, they turn towards you to save them from it and you come into their life and they leave here with your spirit inside of them with a relationship for all eternity with the God that created them and loves them so much he allowed his son to die so they could do that. In Jesus' name, amen.